tēnā katoa. I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This week, how the Department of Conservation is handling the increasing number of tourists on the conservation estate. There's been a huge growth in tourism numbers. 3.7 million visited New Zealand last year and they're projected to increase to 5.1 million by 2024. And that means more and more tourists in our national parks and camping grounds. The Department of Conservation is trying to balance its role as conservator of one-third of New Zealand's public land while ensuring people have the proper access to some of our most remote and sought-after tourism hotspots. South Island Bureau Chief Belinda McCammon investigates if DOT can manage its role as de facto Ministry of Tourism without sacrificing its responsibility as the guardian of public land. And will the government's visitor strategy make any difference? The successful marketing of New Zealand with its beautiful scenery, endless wide-open spaces and welcoming locals has been a magnet to the hordes of overseas visitors who travel here each year. But the success of tourism has been a double-edged sword for some, especially small communities, who are struggling to deal with visitor numbers to dock campgrounds and walking tracks. Any effective regulation and management of tourism requires dock to do its job in law. And at the moment, that's patchy. It's just going to get worse and worse. We don't want to be responsible for that. We have a duty to the next couple of generations to keep this area the way it was. It's the whole big issue of all the tourists coming to New Zealand. And I also think it's possibly a central government issue where they collect the money, they have to put it back into infrastructure. The Department of Conservation oversees one-third of the land in New Zealand, yet it doesn't have an up-to-date visitor strategy. As the numbers of tourists grow year-on-year, some communities say they're already struggling with the numbers that visit in the busy summer season. Today, a stunning day, and there's two, three vehicles here. bit ironical. But in the busy season, it is totally packed. It's packed with everything from caravans, camper vans... I'm meeting with Anne Patterson at the Uhuridi campground. She's the chairperson of the Omanama Residents Association. Her family has lived in the district for five generations. The campground sits alongside the busy stretch of highway between Christchurch and Queenstown. On the day we meet, there's only one other car parked on the site, but with the sound of the nearby river and the stunning snow-capped views, it's hard not to see the appeal. Anne Patterson loves the site, and so do the tourists. With the river for washing and one toilet, the campground doesn't cost a cent, which means in summer it's packed each night. Anne Patterson and others in the community forced Doc and the Mackenzie District Council to acknowledge the problems with campground management in a recent town meeting. It was a big turnout, and it's a big bone of contention for locals here. She says Omarama is just one of the many towns on the overloaded New Zealand tourist trail. Our little corner is being trashed and we love it and we want it to stay like that. And collectively, as all these small communities, we have to be vocal, get together and make the tourism industry understand the reasons why we don't want this to happen. And once again, I think that comes back to the various departments, central government tourist industry, the dock, the local district councils, they've all got to wake up and see what's happening. These are the very parts of New Zealand these people want to visit, so we have to do something about it. 
Anne Patterson says she was told a second toilet would be built by October by dock and that it would be monitored. But there's been nothing in writing, nothing to tell her what monitoring or service will happen. The second toilet has yet to be built. She says with another busy summer season only weeks away, the current situation can't continue. It's the sheer numbers and it's the lack of consideration because I'm sure a lot of people are genuine, really good people, but we can't let this carry on any longer. It's been going on and the, some of the agencies that have vested interest in this know very well the situation. It's just been getting worse from year to year to year to year and nothing happens. So I guess we're trying to say enough's enough, tidy it up, administer it correctly. She says the infrastructure for tourists isn't here and DOC needs to be more proactive in monitoring of the campground in summer. When you have over 100 vehicles plus here at night, how can one person control that on a weekly basis? It doesn't make sense. So is the answer increasing uh, the resources like increased ranger visits or having someone more permanently sort of based here in the, in the peak season or is it restricting access to this campground? I think the answer to that is probably both. A bit further up the road, Andrew Sutherland is a fourth-generation farmer. He also runs the tourist attraction Clay Cliffs, a spectacular geological attraction. He says it's not just a Mackenzie district problem. They're just the first cab off the rank, and as tourism numbers grow, soon it'll be a problem around the country. Yes, it's a bit of a storm brewing, I can see, as far as, as that campsite goes. and the, what, what are, you, are you going to limit it? Are you, how are you going to run it? It all costs money. And at the moment, it's actually going to land up on the ratepayer effectively. He says DOC needs to look at different ways of running its campgrounds. Maybe DOC maybe need to make a business out of it, maybe to a degree. Uh, and it's, it, I believe it has to be limited, though, because there are commercial operations which actually are surviving on like such as camping grounds and Marama and Twizel, and they are good camping grounds. They should be, be used, firstly. And I don't believe that campers should just have the right they can camp for free. It's going to cost us for them to have the, have the utilities. If we all work together and play our parts, we can help spread the benefits of tourism out into the regions and over the shoulder season so that all Kiwis can enjoy what tourism brings year-round. At the annual Tourism Awards in Christchurch, operators gathered to celebrate their success. And the message from the Minister of Tourism, Calvin Davis, was clear. Communities can benefit from tourism. Chris Roberts of Tourism Industry Aotearoa, who hosted the awards, believes there needs to be new thinking at DOC in order to ensure those benefits are spread around the country. He says DOC is restricted by the 30-year-old legislation it operates under. There certainly is the question to be asked whether DOC has the internal capability uh, to manage some of these issues around uh, recreation and tourism facilities. Uh, and they're currently in a process of expanding that capability. They are employing more people, which is a good start. Um, but there is uh, a tension there um, in terms of uh, DOC's requirements to uh, manage all the concessionaires, uh, to determine the right economic modelling for um, how they charge for accessing the dock estate for those commercial operators, um, what's the right fees to charge for huts, etc., etc. These are uh, skill sets and, and capabilities that um, 
don't naturally fit within dock. They're trying to build them. So um, you know, at the moment, we wouldn't be calling for um, any structural change to the way that's managed. We just have to see the capabilities within the organisation improve. Chris Roberts says DOC is getting more involved with Tourism New Zealand over how the country is marketed overseas and has committed to further clampdown on compliance by operators. But he says a visitor strategy is long overdue in order to have a clear plan in place. He says there's huge potential using the conservation estate to attract visitors to other parts of the country. But if there's no infrastructure in place there, he argues, it will just create another problem. Let's have a look at our charts in the office out there and you'll find that here, Queenstown, Tiana and Milford, right throughout the next summer, if you want to come up here, you've got to get in mighty early because the bookings are very, very heavy. Tourism at Aoraki, Mount Cook, hasn't changed much since Robert Marshall, the chairperson of the then THC, opened the rebuilt Hermitage Hotel in 1958. Mary Hobbs lives at Aoraki, Mount Cook Village with her husband Charlie and are dock concession operators running the Old Mountaineers Cafe. She says if you come to Aoraki, Mount Cook looking for solitude in summer, your best bet is at 6 o'clock in the morning with the 45 village car park overflowing throughout the day. Mary Hobbs wants Doc to rethink how it funds the facilities needed to cope with the millions of visitors each year. There's a great angst building up too because Doc are increasingly putting pressure on small businesses for more money, but they're letting millions of overseas tourists come in here for free. They're not paying a dollar to walk down the hooker track, as an example. But that will soon change with the border levy. Mm. Possibly, but I think that there should be a charge into national parks so that DOC get the money to be able to reinvest in their own infrastructure. Last month, the Department of Conservation announced plans for tourist management, specifically the cars, including a possible park and ride system. Mary Hobbs is not sure that's the best option for the park and would like Doc to consult and work alongside the community more. Park and ride scheme might sound good on paper in a Wellington office. It might sound good for perhaps a government most disposed to, most predisposed or keen on removing the village completely out of the park. But that horse is bolted. That was an option maybe 50 years ago. But when you've got a six-storey, two-wing hermitage that's probably got a lease for 100 years, the village is going to stay here. And if you have a park and ride scheme, you're probably going to have a big corporation come and do the quote-unquote park and ride, and they're not going to be um, dropping off everywhere. They're going to be dropping off their particular place of choice. But it's not just locals and business owners who are feeling the strain placed on facilities by New Zealand's successful tourism industry. Those who want to spend their spare time in the great outdoors are worried as well. Let's return to the issue of access through the Hunter Valley Station now. Peter Wilson is the president of Federated Mountain Clubs of New Zealand, or FMC. He says while the Conservation Act sets out DOC's priorities, conservation, New Zealand recreation, then tourism it's not getting the balance right. He's another who feels the absence of a visitor strategy is holding Doc back, 
but concedes the department is trying to be proactive. Perhaps it's a lack of resourcing, perhaps it's a culture of being unwilling to consult because other parts of the department are still generating strategies and not consulting or talking to either industry or recreationalists such as FMC or sometimes both. So that's one side of it. The other side is the implementation challenge. So it's quite common for the department to write a National Park Management Plan or a Conservation Management Strategy and then 10 years on, 20 years on, the limits or the rules in those plans are still not implemented. And we're dealing with that situation in Fiordland right now where we've found some concessions for aircraft operators that go back to 1989 and they're not consistent with the past two national park plans. Peter Wilson says all the department can do is receive the loads of tourists that arrive here wanting to visit, often to walk in the conservation estate and then deal with the problems after the tourists leave. He says the backcountry is suffering from neglect, not from overuse, with many huts and tracks needing maintenance and upgrades. Right now in Fiordland, if it comes to a hut or a track like that, if it's a great walk, you can get money for it. But we have the vast component of, other, of the rest of Fiordland, the Dusky Track, the George Sound Track and other huts and tracks that are suffering from serious neglect because when the local managers put in budget bids to head office of DOC for money to upgrade them, they just can't get the money. He says DOC is reluctant to seek advice outside of itself and suggests it form a high-level recreational group to test their ideas outside of the culture of the department. He says so-called visitor dispersal or getting tourists to visit areas off the beaten track is the worst thing DOC can do because then New Zealanders are forced out, resulting in more dissatisfaction. Tourism itself doesn't want to expand its footprint massively on public conservation land. It's happy to try and change routes into regional centres of New Zealand that tourists aren't going, such as the Catlins and maybe the northern, the northern west coast and Northland and places like that. No problem with that at all. But if we're just taking a development mentality and finding isolated, tranquil, untracked spots in the backcountry and saying, hey, let's develop them, then we have a big fight on our hands. So we're floating that up on the top deck. Just going to have to spin the boat around uh, to get close to it and obviously make it a little bit more comfortable. So we're just going to try and track it down and uh, I'll get a bit of information about the further If you're sceptical about the pulling power of New Zealand's conservation estate, you haven't been on a boat in Milford Sound when tourists clamber to see a lone penguin on the shores. Simon Milne is the Professor of Tourism at AUT and the Director of the Tourism Research Institute. He says the industry needs more evidence-based tourist research to understand visitor patterns so agencies like DOC can make better decisions. He says DOC is doing the best it can, but there needs to be a multi-agency approach for DOC to deal with its tourism role. It's a discussion, he says, DOC should have started 10 years ago. They can certainly work uh, in isolation and do what they can and they certainly, I think, do a very good job at a destination or, or park-specific level. But they're really, to, in, in many respects, they're, they're kind of beholden to those, those broader government policies and that broader focus which still is on um, growth in terms of tourism uh, and perhaps not enough thought about the implications and impacts. 
Simon Mills says capping numbers on the conservation estate is one option, but it may not be popular. He says it's not just the need for more toilets on conservation land. He says there are larger infrastructure issues that DOC will need to consider that will require the department to be innovative. When will we start to see greater pressure on, for example, the construction of gondola-type uh, systems to take people away from roads, to provide them with other opportunities to get to these very uh, popular sites? Will gondola use play out over time as the best option, even though it will lead to some building on uh, the conservation estate? Can we argue that in the long term that impact will be on the environment less significant than just allowing continued numbers of cars to to drive. We're going to see a number of issues around these questions as we move forward. And I think DOC will have to be very innovative and obviously very consultative in how it manages these challenges. The government's plans for a tourist tax of between $25 and $35 is totally inadequate, according to the mayor of one of our most popular tourist destinations. The government's announcement last month of a new $35 visitor levy is expected to raise an estimated $80 million a year to pay for tourism infrastructure and conservation projects. The Minister of Conservation, Eugenie Sage, says the levy also sends a message to visitors that this is their way of contributing to the conservation of the country. Paying at the border is much more efficient and we've also got protection in our law for free access to national parks and conservation land. I have no plans to change that. New Zealanders need free access to public conservation lands. Charging people at the border is a way of them contributing. Differential pricing, um, the double fees that uh, overseas visitors pay on great walks for the huts on those four uh, great walks is another way. And if that trial of differential pricing on the four great walks is successful, that will be extended to all the other great walks. While Eugenie Sage welcomes the levy, she admits the department has a challenge on its hands. We haven't seen good strategic planning around tourism in the past decade. It's just been simply encouraging more and more visitors to come here without thinking about have we got enough uh, infrastructure? What is the strategy to ensure that the benefits of that increase in visitation are shared across the regions? So we need quite major change and DOC's part of that. She agrees that DOC needs to be more strategic with its visitor planning and says the soon-to-be-launched visitor strategy will help with that focus. That's where the big change is needed, to being more planned in terms of how we manage visitors, more strategic about where they go, and more joined-up thinking between the Ministry of Tourism, the Department of Conservation. So there is work on a tourism strategy in its initial stages that both agencies will be very clearly, very closely involved with. How to better manage one of New Zealand's most iconic destinations, Milford Sound, is the focus of the Milford Opportunities Project. It's likely to form the basis of how people pressure will be managed at other popular tourist destinations as well. It's not fundamentally the people, it's actually the way they arrive in buses, much at the same time, and it's our vehicles and the pressure of private vehicles and camper vans and the demand for more car parking. It's a national park, not a car park. 
there needs to be much more investment in alternative transport options, and that's what that Opportunities Project is looking at, how to deal with visitor growth at Milford and how to ensure that people enjoy this magnificent area, the dramatic landscapes, the quiet, the waterfalls, uh, the sea, without feeling that they're cluttered and have been a sort of an ant trail of vehicles to get there. We'll get going for Milford Sound, so welcome on board. My name's Kevin. I'll be driving you through to Milford uh, Sound today. Aaron Fleming is DOC's Director Operations in the Southern South Island, one of DOC's biggest conservation areas. He says the increasing trend of South Drive tourists is causing issues, especially in Milford Sound, where there's a 9% increase in visitors and eight to 900,000 visitors each year. As the daily stream of visitors and their cars whisk by in the background, he says the National Park can take more people, but not more cars. Do we look at traffic control? Do we have to look at some kind of other ways to try and control that kind of number of people and cars? And where does it come? Does it come from the, the bottom or the top? Are you telling the minister, are you recommending upwards what should be done, or are you taking instruction downwards of how they want it dealt with? You know, some of these things might actually be both. You know, certainly operationally, um, it's my responsibility on the ground, along with some of my key staff, to be able to make those decisions and make things work. Uh, but some of these things that we're talking about might require a bigger change than that. This summer, he says, there will be an emphasis on compliance with operators who don't have permits to operate or are operating outside of their permits on conservation estate. Last season, dock rangers clocked up an extra 600 hours on the ground, and there'll be more rangers posted in key areas this summer. He says the more visible the dock rangers and volunteers, the better the visitor behaviour. He says the Milford Opportunities Project, the review of Milford Sound, will give dock a framework for decades to come. What it may mean for visitors to Milford Sound remains unclear. Would you like to see a cap on tourist numbers in Milford Sound? Uh, so personally, you know, I, I think that you know, we need to do this piece of work. You know, we need to understand the drivers, we need to understand what that future visitor experience looks like, we need to understand the different um, models of delivery going forward that might be at our fingertips. So I think there's lots for us to work through first before we can you know, really look at whether limits is actually an option. Paul Duffy is the chairperson of the South Catlins Charitable Trust. It leases the reserve from the Southland District Council and over the past 16 years the team has worked with council and dock to enhance and protect the area. If you visit this remote part of the country, you may encounter yellow-eyed penguins, Hector's dolphins, New Zealand sea lions and you'll definitely see the 170 million year old petrified forest. In July, the Trust opened Visitorscape, a cafe and information centre to cater to the growing number of visitors to the area. Doc funded the public toilets attached to the building. Since the Trust was formed, visitor numbers have increased from 30,000 a year to 150,000, the bulk of which are in the summer. The Catlins, and especially Curio Bay, are one of the areas that may see the effects of the push for visitor dispersal. That's a challenge, um, and that's why we are always working at ways of trying to uh, spread the, the visitor 
uh, experience around a little wider than just here. We see this new building here as being a gateway. We actually have interpretive information inside about other points in the Catlins. I think the thing about the Catlins is the attraction is its nature. So we've got to make sure that we uh, don't uh, have negative effects on that nature or or we've lost the point completely. So I think right through the coast um, there are various volunteers, um, all working away in different ways to enhance little areas that have a visitor attraction but at the same time protect uh, what's important about it. Paul Duffy says the Trust has a good working relationship with DOC but they've got a long list of things it should be doing. Unfortunately last year through um, circumstances out of anyone's control uh, the DOC uh, volunteer ranges were only here for a a much shorter time than they otherwise would have been. Our trustees and some people from the community actually backed up that uh, last year um, in the, you know, by volunteering um, to... And it's really just a case of being with down on the petrified forest, uh, particularly at the times of day when the penguins are coming in and out from the sea, and just informing people about what's appropriate and monitoring, um, you know, behaviour... This year's Doc Conservation Award winner at the Tourism Awards was John Barrett, who runs the Kapiti Island Nature Tours. He's a Doc concession operator and says he finds the balance of conservation and tourism easy, as it's based around the traditional Māori principles of whānau and also based on whānau land. But he says communication with the community is key. That's the fundamental question. What does the community want? And unless the community um, is part of tourism growth, it could end up ugly. He says if conservation is in danger, then the industry needs to be prepared to limit numbers and access to areas that are not being properly managed. Tongariro Crossing, for example, we could cut back the numbers. We could cut back the numbers. Why, why, wouldn't we, why wouldn't we be prepared to do that in order to sustain the resource? The, the issue that we have, in my opinion, is that we're focusing and concentrating the visitor numbers on too few resources. If we were able to spread, spread the visitation across the country, uh, then it's not easily, not easily done, but the, there are some fantastic resources around other parts of the country that aren't getting any visitation at all. He says the country needs to be mindful of how tourism, if not managed well, can impact on communities. There's too many examples of poorly managed and poorly planned tourism development. We're at such an early stage developmentally that we can make, we can plan better, we can plan well to make sure we don't end up regretting the whole, the whole business of tourism. A multi-agency visitor strategy is due to be released for consultation in the coming weeks. It will join the review of Milford Sound and the consultation over the management of Aoraki Mount Cook National Park in determining just how much change the Department of Conservation is willing to make in order to balance the ever-growing number of tourists wanting to visit a conservation estate.
That programme was written and presented by Belinda McCammon. If you'd like to discover some great listening, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Lee Marama McLaughlin explores why so many Māori prisoners fail to thrive after their release and end up back inside. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Lovely to have you with us, and do join us again next week.